tonight, uh, we're going to wrap up our um, Advent series, and um, don't intend to go very long tonight. Famous last words of a pastor, I get that. But uh, the way that we've been thinking about Advent has been, uh, this, the theme that's tied it together has been this idea of Christmas songs, music, if you will. And the lyric that we wrapped around the first candle of Advent, this, this theme, is the uh, hope was the theme. And we said this, that it is God's faithfulness that fuels our hope. And I hope, man, that you've carried this in your heart a little bit, that if God was faithful then, then he, when's he going to be faithful? When can we trust him to be faithful? Now. If he, was, if he was faithful there, then he can be trusted to be faithful here. And if he was faithful with those folks over there, he can be trusted to be faithful with us. It's not necessarily that the same promises that he made to them are the promises that he made to us, but if he was faithful to those promises, the promises that he made to us, we can count on them. God's faithfulness fuels our hope. The second uh, candle is the candle of peace. And we uh, even mentioned this last night, that peace is not an absence of chaos, but instead is this sense of wholeness and well-being about us. This, the Hebrew word is shalom, this sense of rightness about us. It's a byproduct, piece is, of our focus on God. It's not that our problems or our circumstances even necessarily change. It's just that they're seen in proper perspective. When we see how incredible God is, how majestic He is, how powerful He is, how awesome He is, how merciful He is, how wonderful He is, how great He is, how sovereign He is, then the rest of this stuff, it just gets put in perspective. Peace is a byproduct of focus on God. We lit the third candle, <clears throat> the candle of joy. We lit the third, there we go. Uh, and we talked about how joy expands when the kingdom comes. When the kingdom, when we encounter the kingdom and run into that, joy kind of starts in our hearts, but then it never is contained, right? It just keeps going and going and going. It just explodes outward. And this is represented for us in this past uh, couple of weeks ago. We represented this in Mary's song where she said, Oh, I mean, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He, she couldn't keep it in. Joy expands as the kingdom comes. And then uh, last week, we lit the candle of love. And we talked about this rhythm of receiving and sacrifice receiving and sacrifice, that love has a rhythm. We talk, the world would want us to think about love as only receiving. But true love, biblical love, is both receiving and sacrifice. And so we see this. Uh, we see this displayed all throughout all sorts of people. Uh, but specifically, we, we looked at Simeon last week where uh, Jesus uh, was taken up in his arms and he said, now God, I've received everything that you've promised to me and you're going to make this incredible sacrifice for the people, bringing salvation. And that allows us to light the last candle, the Christ candle, if it'll light. I don't know how many of you saw last night. If you were in the 4 o'clock service, one of the kids, ha, 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 one of the kids went to um, light the candle and accidentally put it out. So I appropriately you know, gave him a little grief over that. And if you were in the 6 o'clock service, guess who did the exact same thing? We light, we light this candle tonight because um, the, the thing that's so good to remind ourselves of is that help, <clears throat> excuse me, help is sure because he has come. We light this fifth candle, this, this Christ candle, because we're celebrating the fact that the advent has happened. Jesus has come, and so our help is sure because he's come. So if you have your Bible in Hebrews chapter 2, I um, just want to think for a moment about these great, great words. This is Christmas passage, 
um, if there is one in Hebrews, this is going to be it right here. Verse 14, starting in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So just two questions tonight, and I want to think about these two things. This, this lyric, let's add to our Christmas music, our Christmas singing, that help is sure because he has come. Question, uh, first question goes something like this. Uh, why, why did he come? Why did he come? And, and the answer in verse 17 is pretty clear. Therefore, he did what? He had to be made. What, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be made. Why, why did he come? The answer is because he had to. Because he had to. If, if there is something uh, that, that's clear from this text and something that's clear from the Christmas story is that he had to. God the Father had said, hey, this is the plan. Jesus says, I'm in on that plan. That includes me coming. I had to come. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Back in verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the exact same things. He had to come. He had to come. Um, this is something along the lines, this maybe. Uh, if you have kids, you've, you've tried this parenting strategy for, uh, before. I, I call it parenting from the other room. Anybody? Something has happened in the other room, and I am very comfortable in the current place where I am. Therefore, what do I do? Y'all cut that out over there. Just drop it. Go away. What, I mean, whatever you say, right? As if the sound waves from the one place you're going to then bend around the corner and somehow affect reality in the other room. I mean, have you noticed how ineffective this is as a parenting strategy, right? Because what it generally takes, at least at the Henderson house, let me just say, if you, if you can bend sound waves and affect reality, I want to talk to you because you probably need to write a book or something. But for me, there, there has to be a sense of my presence stepping into the situation in order for change to be effective. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It's not as if I can just, hey, y'all stop doing, be different, whatever. That I have to actually step into the situation in order for change to be affected. And this is what God has done for us. He hasn't shouted from some Pluto distant, hey, people, quit being so crazy. Have, don't you know that there are tra there, you're just creating your own tragedy? Don't you know that this story is going to end poorly? Don't you know that the he's not yelling from the he's not parenting from the other room. In fact, he had to become. It says he had to, he had to become like his brothers in every respect because he was going to enter in to the situation. His presence was going to come in order for a change to be actually made. There's a interesting conversation kind of going on amongst uh, uh, some folks in, in ministry world right now, uh, because a, a rather famous um, pastor 
is advocating for that we focus on the resurrection and nothing else. And he advocates for that. I mean, I'm for the resurrection, believe me. But he advocates for that so strongly that he dismisses a lot of other things, or at least comes to the edge of dismissing those, even saying things like, well, I'm not, you know, the, the birth narratives, the, the things that we learn about Jesus from Matthew and Luke as he, as he comes into the world, they don't really matter all that much. What really matters is that Jesus rose from the dead. Which one more time? Is it, I mean, it is fundamental to the Christian faith, as in there is no Christian faith without the resurrection. I'm 100% behind that right there. Um, but the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus doesn't happen if there's not a bodily birth of Jesus. You get that, right? Like we can't just throw one out with the other. The whole thing is like a big Jenga set in some ways. Like the more we pull out, the less stable it becomes. And so um, this this conversation that's happening, um, it, it's an important conversation to have because it, it's important to reaffirm some things like Hebrews 2.17. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to. Why did he come? Because he had to. He couldn't just yell from the other place, from the other room, from heaven, if you will, from the throne room to us and go, y'all don't be like that. Don't do that. Instead, his presence had to come into the situation in order for change to be made. Uh, because you're here on Christmas um, night and um, you know, you're all the real Christians. I don't know where all the rest of them are. Um, but, but there's actually a really, really important piece of 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 our church uh, and uh, the, the confession, if you will, of people who follow Jesus. Uh, there was a big fight that went on in about 360 or 70 uh, AD. A guy named Apollinarius, which you know you won't worry about that stuff. Uh, but the guy who opposed, the, the guy, the guy who was saying the, the bad stuff was saying this: Jesus took on a human body, but the rest of him was a little. I mean, like he didn't really have a human mind, and he didn't really have some other stuff. Like he just he had some. I mean, there were some things that were human about Jesus, but he wasn't fully human. And a guy named Gregory of Nazianzus, which, you know, everybody's going to win the Bible trivia game after this moment. Um, but a guy named Gregory of Nazianzus said this, and this is so important. What is not assumed cannot be saved. In other words, if Jesus didn't become fully human, then he can't actually save full humans. And so when the scripture comes along in Hebrews 2 and says, and he had to become like his brothers. In how many respects? What did it say? In every respect. In every respect. You know what he's, he's doing. He's saying, hey, listen, he's repeating, or excuse me, uh, Hebrews is written first, that Gregor of Nazianzus is repeating exactly what he said. In other words, if Jesus didn't become fully human, what hope do those of us who are fully human have? And the answer is, not much. Not much. What is not assumed cannot be saved what this does. He had to come. He had to come. And what this does, this tells us just how broken we really are. But this tells us how broken we really are because what did Jesus take on? Well, he took on a human mind. Anybody have a broken mind? I mean, I'm not talking about only forgetting your, where your keys were, or forgetting what your wife said, or you know that kind of stuff, all of which is important. I'm talking about having thoughts that you don't want to have. Or not being out of, to be able to get out of this kind of mental tailspin that sends you down a deep, dark hole. Human emotions. He took on human emotions. Anybody have broken emotions? Where things get out of whack and all of a sudden you're running down the path that you never thought that you should. I mean, I mean you just off they go. We talk about this a lot around here. It's the reason why we do this. Uh, why we mention this over and over and over again. That, that emotions, what, how God gave them to us, they're gifts. They're gifts. They are 
They're great companions, but they are terrible guides when it comes to life. And yet sometimes, because they bubble so close to the surface of us, they, they start to take on guiding qualities, and we feel like we have to live according to them. So Jesus came not only to, to redeem, if you will, or heal and fix our minds, but also our emotions. Anybody have broken bodies? Because he took on a human body, not just a human mind, not just a human emotion, but he took on a human body as well. I mean, anybody, again, just anybody have trouble getting off the floor this morning after you were playing with you? Like, you know, a little sore maybe in places you should, ought not be sore? I mean, you know, those kind of th- that's just a, just a hint of the brokenness, not to mention all the serious stuff, all the things that come when the doctor says, hey, we need to sit down and have a visit. He took on human body. How about this one? Um, human relationships. Was Jesus a part of that? Yes. Anybody have broken relationships? Any of them exacerbated by the holidays? Or the human heart, and I mean the very core of who you are. Jesus took that on as well so that he could fix us. And that's his plan, that's his agenda, always has been, that he would come in and renovate us, just tear the walls out, if you will, all the external stuff, get down to the very, 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 very core and start there and then begin to build from there a new person who experiences the new life that we saw represented just a moment ago. Why did he come? He had to come, the Scripture says. And because he had to come, this tells us just how broken we really are. The good news, though, is that help is sure because he has come. You and I, we need this help, but help is sure because he has come. So what kind of help does he bring? What kind of help does he bring? He brings two kinds, it says. Number one, he brings a rescue for us. We saw this represented here in the water just a second ago about how God rescues people uh, from their sin. Look what he says at the end of verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Let's just pause right there. What kind of What kind of ministry, what kind of service does a a merciful and faithful high priest do? The high priest was responsible for going into the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament and making a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Guess what? Jesus did the exact same thing as as the high priest. He went into the Holy of Holies and made a sacrifice, but not the Holy of Holies in the temple. Not the Holy of Holies um, uh, that was created by um, a, a human. Instead, he went into the heavenly place where he made a sacrifice for sin. That is how he served as a merciful and faithful high priest, is that he made a sacrifice for us in the place where it most mattered, the very presence of God. But that just doesn't stop there. Look at what he says. He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and then he goes on to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation. You've been around Heritage Park, you know this. We talk about this a lot. When Jesus entered in to make sacrifice for the people, he didn't bring a goat or a bull or something else. He offered himself. And in doing so, he accomplished this twofold beautiful thing. He accomplished the payment for our sins as well as purchasing favor with God. You and I were so indebted to God that we never could climb out of that hole. I mean, it was credit card upon credit card upon credit card with interest out the wazoo, and we were never spiritually going to get back to even. So Jesus paid our debt. It's not just he got us back to zero. It's propitiation. Pro meaning he's for us. And so he didn't just pay our debt. He purchased 
favor for God so that now you and I stand before God as the righteousness of God in Jesus. You and I stand before God as sons and daughters who have a great opportunity to um, speak with and, and interact with their father. You and I stand as um, heirs before God, receiving everything that he has for us in Jesus. It's not as if it only got us back to zero. He also paid, uh, he not only paid our debt, he also purchased favor for us. He is our propitiation, a merciful and faithful high priest who makes a sacrifice, and he himself was that sacrifice. And then, if that wasn't enough, because that would be enough, but look back, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And not only do we have um, our debts paid, uh, spiritual um, you know, kind of life given to us, but also spiritual freedom. He not only gives us life, he also gives us liberty. He talks about deliverance from slavery. In other words, he didn't just destroy death, that would be awesome enough. He also destroyed the one who has the power of death, who is the devil. And he sets us free so that we can live, so that we can uh, really live and experience the life that he has for us. We don't have to walk in slavery and, and then just kind of hopefully hold on to heaven until heaven comes. That's not the life that Jesus wants for us. Um, instead, we're resting in and relying on the grace of God. Jesus didn't die and he didn't get up from the dead so that you and I could just scrape by and hold on until heaven. He, got, he did what he did. He gave himself as a sacrifice and then rose from the dead in order that we may have something way better than that. Listen to what, how he described it in John 10, verse 10. <clears throat> Listen to this. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Good news, Jesus is taking care of that, right? He destroyed the one who has the power of death. That's the devil. But then he says, I came that they may have life and they have it abundantly. He's not only rescuing us from our sins, but he's also rescuing us from the power of, of, of slavery, of being uh, in, in, uh, bound up in the things that we are, whether they're addictive patterns or, or bad behaviors or, or thinking uh, ways of thinking, whatever it may be. He, come, he has come as a rescuer to set us free from that and to give us abundant or uh, amazing life even. He's provided rescue for us. So that, that's one way. And if that were the only way, that would be enough. But because he's this kind of God, it's more than that. Not only is he providing rescue for us, but also the kind of help, help is sure, uh, because he has come, he not only provides rescue, but also he relates to us where we are. Look at verse 14 again. We'll just hit a couple of these. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. He partook of the same thing. He took on what we take on. Whatever that is, he took on what we take on. He also faced temptation and trial. Look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to come, or see, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Anybody ever struggle with that? Anybody ever wondered, oh golly, you know, I, here I am again. Listen, Jesus had those same experiences. You've been tempted by certain things. Good news, Jesus has been tempted by those things too. Why is it good news that he's been doing that? Because he can come to your help. Help is sure because he has come. And, and because he has come to, uh, because he has come once, he can come to your help whenever you're facing the things that you are. One of the great lies that the enemy puts before us is this I'm the only one who's ever faced this before. Nobody's ever bought that one, right? I'm the only one who's really struggled with this before. Therefore, I can't say this out loud. I'm not going to say it to God because that's terrible. I'm not going to say it to the church because that's terrible. Um, like, faced this before. Well, 
Not according to verse 18. Because he himself was suffered when he was tempted. He is able to come to the help. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Shame, excuse me, instead of, of you know, doing whatever you may think he may be doing, he comes to our help. Shame is a tool of the enemy uh, when you're in temptation then is just broken off of us. It sounds something like this. When the enemy comes to shame us, it sounds something like this. Well, listen, if, if you are a real Christian, you wouldn't really be tempted by this. Well, if, if you were a, a person, uh, you know, re- if God really loved you, he wouldn't let you be tempted by this. He does really love you, and real Christians do experience temptation. How do I know that? Because Jesus himself experienced temptation. And he's able to come to the help of those who are being tempted. And he does. He does. And because shame is such a powerful weapon uh, against, uh, against us, I just want to back this up and leave you with this thought. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies, that's God, and those who are sanctified, who's that? That's us. They all have one source. That is why he is not, what, ashamed to call them brothers. I want to speak this over you, and when we think about Jesus coming to the help, coming to help us, Jesus is not ashamed of you. He's not. The reason he left heaven and came to earth as a baby is because he's not ashamed, and he wants to help you. He wants to rescue you. He wants to bring healing and and, um, all the good things that he has for you. He wants to bring all of that stuff. He's not ashamed. This is the kind of God that we worship. This is the kind of king who's come for us. And so... We're going to pray and sing to that kind of king. Let's be the kind of people whose allegiance locks on to that kind of king. There are all sorts of other places, all sorts of other kings. Uh, the Magi, they encountered two different kings, right? Herod and Jesus, but they only bowed to one. Let's bow to, let's bow to him. Let's bow to him. He's that kind of king. So let me pray, and then we'll respond together.